Please open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 23. We are working our way slowly through this book of Genesis, taking it and trying to take it in manageable sections. Genesis chapter 23. Before we begin, it is important for us as we think about this text to to think about where we are in our own world. Yesterday was the 20-year anniversary. That word doesn't feel quite right. Anniversary is a time where we celebrate. But for lack of a better word, it's a 20-year anniversary of 9-11. Many of us can probably remember where we were on that day when we saw or heard about the news that was going on. In our world, we see it visibly. Whether in those days, we can look back on that day or even in our day today, we can see visibly, viscerally feel that there is something wrong with the world. And if we're honest, it's not just wrong with the world out there. There's also wrong with something inside that we, we ourselves aren't what we ought to be. We ourselves, we're not what we want to be. And if you've ever felt hopeless, if you've ever felt as if God's promises will never come true, if you've ever felt as if all the hope and the happiness and the joy that we will have in Christ that is promised us and assured for us, as if it will never come as if the challenges to it are are too great, the obstacles to get there are too many. This text is for you. And it may not seem like much of a chapter. In fact, if you're just reading through it, it may feel business-like. It is simply a real estate transaction. But never has a real estate transaction meant so very much. And never has it carried so much hope for the future. So read along with me as we look into our text this morning. And then we will pray. Then we will look at our text. And then we will briefly, or as brief as I can possibly be, unpack a handful of ways in which this text addresses us this morning. Let's read with, follow along as I read Genesis chapter 23. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. So Sarah died in Kirjath Arbor, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham came to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham stood up from before his dead and he spoke to the sons of Heth saying, I am a foreigner and a visitor among you. Give me property for a burial place among you that I may bury my dead out of my sight. And the sons of Heth, that is, these are the the Hittites, answered Abraham saying to him, Hear us, my Lord, you are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our burial places. None of us will withhold from you his burial place that you may bury your dead. Then Abraham stood up and bowed himself to the people of the land, the sons of Heth or the Hittites. And he spoke with them saying, If it is your wish that I bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and meet with Ephron, the son of Zohar, for me. 
that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he has, which is at the end of his field. Let him give it to me at the full price as property for a burial place among you. Now Ephron dwelt among the sons of Heth, those people of the Hittites. And Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the presence of the sons of Heth, all who entered at the gate of his city, saying, No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field of the cave that is in it. I give it to you in the presence of the sons of my people. I give it to you. Bury your dead. And Abraham bowed himself down before the people of the land. And he spoke to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, saying, If you will give it to me, please hear me. I will give you money for the field. Take it from me, and I will bury my dead there. And Ephrod answered Abraham, saying to him, My Lord, listen to me. The land is worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? So bury your dead. And Abraham listened to Ephron. And Abraham weighed out the silver for Ephron, which he had named in the hearing of the sons of Heth, 400 shekels of silver currency of the merchants. So the field of Ephron, which was in Machpelah, which was before Mamre, the field and the cave, which was in it, and all the trees that were in the field, which were within all the surrounding borders, were deeded to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the sons of Heth before all who went into the gate of his city. And after this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave that is in it were deeded to Abraham by the sons of Heth, that is the Hittites, as a property for a burial place. Would you join with me before we begin studying God's word together? Would you join with me in asking God's mercy on us to receive his word? Father in heaven, you tell us in your word in Psalm 119, That by your word you give life. Oh, Father, give us life and vitality this morning as we are nourished and fed on your word. That we may hope, that we may be confident, that we may rejoice in all of the promises that are yet to come. In your Son's name, our Savior, Christ Jesus, we pray. Amen. The plot line of this passage is pretty simple. We're told the location of this passage. He is here in this area known as Hebron. It's a a region. He has been here before and he has returned here. Abraham, as a, he is called out of Ur the Chaldees. He then goes and he comes into Canaan, comes to this area of Hebron. Then he goes down to Egypt and then he comes back. And then he goes to this place we saw in the last few weeks at Beersheba. And then he is now at this place in his time in his life. He is back in this area of Hebron. This is because Abraham is, a, he is an immigrant to this region. He is an alien. He's a stranger. He is an outsider. And here he is in this area of Hebron in amongst this group of people, the Hittites, among, among whom he had lived before. And you can see there at the very beginning, we're told what the occasion for this chapter is. That is, Abraham's wife, Sarah, has passed away. And this, 
Her passing has created a crisis for Abraham. And we can be sure that Abraham felt keenly grief's edge, grief's sharp edge pierce his soul. We're told he, he weeps for his wife and he, he grieves for her. And yet, this passage, though it centers around Sarah's death and her need to be buried, she is only mentioned at the beginning and at the end of this chapter. The rest of this chapter is just about him purchasing property. The big question of the chapter is, where will Abraham bury Sarah? What will he do with her? And this is the most significant issue that he is facing. And you might ask, why is this a problem? It's because as a result of Abraham being called out of a foreign country and now entering into Canaan, he has, under the laws of Canaan, he has no right to own any property which is why he is moving from area to area, living there for a time and then moving on. He has no right to own property at all. He has no right to purchase property. That is, he cannot go to someone and have an equal right to purchase property. No one needs to sell him anything. As an outsider, he doesn't have any of those rights. And more than this, even if he were indeed allowed to purchase property under the laws of this time, after he passed away, his property would revert back to the ownership of the person who sold it to him. Do you see why this is a problem for him? Do you see why this is a problem for the people of Israel? God had promised them this land, hadn't he? And he had told back in chapter 12, he had told Abraham, when he calls him to this land, he says, go to the land that I will show you. And he tells him in verse 6 of chapter 12 that when you get there, there will be a people in the land of Canaan already living there. So Abraham knows he's not going to an unoccupied territory. He's going to a place where there already people are. He's going to be an outsider. He's going to be a stranger. He's already going to have these restrictions. And yet the promise comes that God tells him in verse 7, I will give you this land and to your descendants it will belong to them. God has given him these incredible promises and yet his issue of not being able to buy property and not having property and when he can buy property not being able to pass it on to his generation this these become massive legal practical challenges obstacles for him to experience the blessing that God has promised him and so he is dealing with this issue up to now we can be certain that people in his care have passed away. But now that Sarah, his wife, has passed away, he wants to give anything that he can to purchase property for her. He, he doesn't want to leave her in some forgotten grave to be cared for by somebody else. He wants to make sure that That property belongs to him. That he himself could be buried there. That others in his family could be buried there. He wants this to belong to him and to his family forever. 
And so in verses 3 to 4, he rises up before the people, the Hittites in that region, and he asks them for a burial place. And we're told that he is, while we're not given a, an indication of which city this is, this is at, we are told he is in the gate of whatever city is there, whatever prominent city is there. He is at the city gate, and all this is done is before the people of the Hittites. He is doing it publicly. That is, he is doing everything he can to make sure this deal that he is striking is not only legal, but it is so above board that it will never be able to be questioned ever. He wants this to be absolutely certain to everybody that this land belongs to him and to his people forever. And so he goes and he asks for property. And in verses 5 and 6, the the Hittites respond with permission for Abraham to bury Sarah in any of their tombs. And it's a gracious offer. But Abraham doesn't just simply want to let her be forgotten. He wants to make sure she is honored well. So in verses 7 to 9, Abraham requests to purchase a specific plot of land. And, And in verse 10, Ephron comes on the scene And he offers just to give the land to Abraham. And Abraham, though I'm sure he felt that was a generous offer, and it was, he insists on paying for it. And when Ephron mentions that price of 400 shekels, and and Ephron, he says, the the price of that field and everything in it, and the cave that's there, it's 400 shekels of silver. What's that between you and I? Basically, he's saying, look, I'm massively wealthy. You're massively wealthy. This is chump change. Let's not worry about it. But Abraham, he hears 400 shekels of silver. He doesn't barter. He doesn't negotiate. He doesn't, you know, there's no, I'm offering a bid for the land and you come in and we're going to meet somewhere in the middle. No, Abraham hears that price and he is willing to lay down exactly what is mentioned without haggling, without bartering. We are told that as a result of all of this, there is a transaction that happens. So Abraham buys the land in verses 17 and 18. In verse 19, he buries his wife, Sarah. And in verse 20, we are reminded again of the historical significance of this land. So the field and the cave that is in it were deeded to Abraham by the Hittites as a property for burial place. Belongs to him. It belongs to him. It belongs to his family. It is deeded to him. So what does this have to do with you and I? I suppose we could come up with five really cutesy lessons about how this influences how we're supposed to strike real estate deals or buy property or something like that. But I'm not nearly creative enough to see any of that. I want to draw our attention to a couple other things. One, this first item is is only tangential, if I may. But it raises specific questions. In fact, as I was thinking through this text and I was wondering, should I mention this thing? And I was talking to this with someone else And they raised the very question that I was considering raising. And so let's raise it. And that question is this. This whole passage deals with the subject of death and burial. 
And it raises the question, what is the Christian or the biblical view of death and burying? That is, is it wrong for someone who trusts in Christ to have their loved ones or themselves cremated? I know that this is a question that some of you have wrestled with, may be wrestling with now. And so I thought it worthwhile for us to to meditate on it and to see in this text some help from this. This whole passage is centered around the plan of Abraham to bury Sarah, and it leads us to this question of whether cremation is wrong and unbiblical, whether it is only, whether the Bible mandates, prescribes, not just describes, but prescribes that you and I bury our dead and that cremation is never an option. Let me work back Since I am a nerd and I do enjoy history, let's go back in history a bit. And one of the things that we ought to know is that wherever Christianity has spread, that is, wherever faithful Bible teaching and preaching has spread, it has led to the practice, a change in practice, of people burning their dead to people burying their dead. And you can follow that practice down through history. That that has arisen wherever Christian practice has gone, wherever Christian teaching has gone, that practice has changed from burning our dead to burying our dead. And the heart of it is that when we bury our dead, it is a picture of our future hope of the resurrection that Christ has not only given us an example, but have assured us that all who believe in him will share in that resurrection hope. So burying our dead points to this truth that we are looking forward to our resurrection with Christ Jesus. So in contrast to other religious beliefs, where burning the dead has been a sign of us or as humans returning to the universe, rejoining the cosmos, or, or entering back into the oneness of, of the world, of the universe, of, uh, of whatever spirituality that may be behind everything. We as Christians believe in a resurrection from the dead. And that has altered the way we have approached death and burial. So cremation might be wrong for you as a Christian if we view it as a way of rejoining the universe. Or it might be unwise if we are simply by cremating our dead, we want to keep them around, so to speak. We, we, we look at them as almost being a, a superstitious presence that will bless our home or we might put some of their ashes in a necklace or, or a flask to, to wear around our neck. And that might be wrong if we're looking at to ward off spirits or trying to draw some, some kind of hope that we are with them. And the Bible tells us that when we die, we are forever now with the Lord as Christians. More than that, the hope of Christian teaching is that we will one day be with our loved ones who have trusted in Christ. And that is a vibrant hope. And that ought to, that ought to alter the way we approach our dead. 
Not that we don't grieve their loss. Uh, Clearly, Abraham wants a plot of land that he and his family can return to again and again and again. But it is not viewing that person as a superstitious presence that may protect us from evil or be present with us in this life. But that does not mean that cremation now is always wrong. And I want to be clear about this because this, some of us, this may, we may be confused on this issue. In many places around the world, cremation does picture a specific religious belief. And if you're living in that culture, you need to think two, or three, or four times before you may consider that option. But here in the States, it has lost much of that meaning. One of the greatest challenges for young families or families in general is the costs that are associated with burying. Partly because of government pro- uh, policies, partly, which are good and necessary, by the way. And partly because when we bury our loved ones, we want to do the best for them that we possibly can. Burying funeral expenses, burying our dead, it has become big business. It has become extraordinarily costly in our time to bury. Because of that, as we when we approach death or when we approach burying our loved ones, we need to weigh those costs. That is, it is, there is nothing Christian about honoring our dead in such a way that impoverishes the living. That puts the living on such financial footing that they are therefore not able to live in a sustainable way. We are to be wise stewards of what God has given us. And and the Christian hope is not tied to those who are buried are raised from the dead. It is that all who die in Christ, no matter what may happen to their earthly bodies, they will be with Christ forever through a physical resurrection. So I say all this to say this. First, as, as much as you can, you'll want to plan ahead. So that if you are able, you are able to, to bury your dead and don't leave those costs to be borne out by someone else. Second, if you're able to, I'd encourage you to see that burying your dead is and can be an expression of your hope in Christ Jesus. That one day, that, that, that grave will be empty. And death will be given way to life. And last, I want to say this. If you choose cremation for your loved one because of cost or because of some other reason that is not inconsistent with Christian teaching, I want to encourage you, brother or sister, you do not sin. I am not going to lay down a law or a command that the scriptures themselves do not give us. We need to be careful with that. That is all tangential, however, to our passage. An important question I think it raises, but it is a tangential curiosity. 
there are two other things I want us to see from this passage in particular. And the first one is this, that we should expect God to work through ordinary means. We should expect God to work through ordinary means. Why do I say that? In this chapter, there is only one mention of God, and it is not given by Abraham or the narrator. It is on the lips of the Hittites themselves. When they are talking with Abraham and he asks for a burial place for Sarah, he wants to buy it. And they say to him, reverently, respectfully, they clearly by this point, they have learned to respect Abraham as a man of God. And they call him, Abraham, you are a prince of God. That is the only mention of God in this text. We are not given a hint in any way that he is involved in this activity. And yet we cannot be blind to the fact that that is intentionally done by Moses. Not because God isn't present, but because of the way that God most often works in this world is not through the extraordinary, through the miraculous ways, but often he works through ordinary means. In chapter 22, the chapter before, Abraham took Isaac, his son, intending to sacrifice him as God command. But God opens Abraham's eyes and shows him that he has miraculously, supernaturally provided a a replacement sacrifice for Isaac. Before that, Abraham has seen an even greater miracle that is his wife who was way, way past the time where it would be possible for her, her to have a child. Now she gets pregnant and has a son that is a miracle. It is supernatural. So many times Abraham has been given a vision or a revelation from the Lord, a miraculous supernatural word. When God called him immediately out of Ur of the Chaldeans, it was audibly, miraculously, supernaturally. But here, there is nothing like that. There is no miraculous. There is no supernatural. It is just ordinary. It's just normal. And I think this This challenges us in the ways that we tend to want God to work. Sometimes maybe even the way we expect God to work. We want direction for our lives. And so God, show us a sign. Tell me what you want me to do. Give me some miracle, give me some supernatural event when what God really wants us to do is to use the... The the wisdom that he has given us, the knowledge that he has given us, submit it all to the Spirit by prayer and to trust him. He uses ordinary people in ordinary circumstances to accomplish his extraordinary purposes. And God here is using the ordinary circumstances and people of life to fulfill his promise to Abraham that he would give him a land. We see that here in this text. The ordinary event, although painful event, of Sarah's death. It is ordinary in a fallen world. And yet, that is the event, that is the occasion by which God gives and and, and 
fulfills, begins to fulfill this promise for Abraham and, I, and, and his descendants. He uses the good reputation of Abraham. The people of the Hittites call him a prince of God. They clearly think very well of him. He uses the customs and the practices of the Canaanites. Here, this text is filled with foreign practices for us. Abraham, to accomplish this deal, he goes to the place in which deals were done, the city gate. You and I, if we're going to make a purchase of a land, we will have to involve lawyers. We may have to involve real estate agents. It's a whole elaborate process. But here, it's the ordinary customs of the people of the land in which he is living. And Abraham is wisely navigating them. He's wisely navigating them. And that's what this text illustrates. They are offering one thing. He counters with another. We'll just give it to you. No, no, I will pay full price. Ephron comes along. What's 400 shekels between you and I? And Abraham takes the hint. That's the price he's wanting for this. And so rather than ignoring it and bartering with it, he gives it to him immediately. And he knows this is the way he's going to receive the promised land from the Lord. All of this is ordinary, not miraculous. And these are the ways which God most often uses to bless his people. And these are the ways which we tend to most easily neglect for ourselves. We want God's direction, so we look for that sign. We want God to give us some kind of spiritual, vibrant spiritual relationship with him. And so we we might try to get away, look for some supernatural experience, ecstatic experience with God, looking for something over the top, looking for something that our hearts explode with joy or with the feeling of the presence of God. We're looking for something spectacular. When God often works and most often works through the ordinary. This is why for centuries Christians referred to specific disciplines and practices as the ordinary means of grace. That is, God draws near and strengthens his people through certain means, through reading his Bible, through reading the word, through preaching the word and listening to preaching to the word, to singing together with gathering with other Christians by praying by taking the Lord's table, by, by following in the steps of baptism, by following Christ in the steps of baptism. All of these things are ordinary. I mean, church is ordinary. You come, we pray a little bit, we sing a little bit, you listen to a guy for a long time, then we sing a little bit more, and then we go home. There's, there's nothing spectacular going on here on the surface. There, there's no like smoke machines billowing out. There's no lights and big show happening here. It is the ordinary means by which God builds you up. It may be a hundred times where you sit down and read your Bible and you're not sure exactly what most of it means. 
But just as you probably don't remember all that you ate this week, yet your body was nourished by it, so even if you do not remember all that you have read or all that you have heard taught or preached, yet your soul is still nourished. God works through ordinary means. I'm not saying don't long for something more. I mean, because something more is coming. God promises us something more, something eternal more, something that is where the joy of God will be experienced by his people forever. That is coming if you have trusted in Christ and nothing can stop it or keep you from it. And yet, in this life, the way God is going to minister to you is through ordinary means. And he'll often use ordinary people to do it. Think of how you came to Christ. Not one of you came to Christ because an angel visited you. Not one of you came to Christ because God opened up the heavens and spoke to you. But you probably came to Christ through a friend sharing the gospel with you. You probably came to Christ from a parent or a Sunday school teacher or a pastor. You probably came to Christ through reading the Bible on your own or reading a tract. I'll never forget Dave Bruner sharing years ago uh, about a testimony of someone he knew where he was driving or, or, or shopping and as he was shopping, he noticed a piece of paper that had gotten caught up in the wheels of the cart. And isn't that just the most annoying thing when you're pushing a cart along in the shopping store and one of the wheels isn't turning? Doesn't that, then you start thinking, is it wrong to steal someone else's cart, you know? And this person went and they pulled that piece of paper out of that out of that car, out of the cart's wheel, stuffed it in their pocket. And later on, they, they pull it out and it's a, it's a tract. And they, they read it for some reason. We would say because the Spirit of God was drawing them. And they read it and they trusted in Christ Jesus. And this isn't to say that when you go shopping this week, you should take tracks and stuff them in the carts. That, that's not an evangelistic strategy that we want to promote here. And if you do do that, don't use one with the Limerick Chapel sticker on it, please. Let's just say God uses ordinary means to accomplish his extraordinary purposes. The extraordinary purpose of of someone who is dead in their sins being raised to spiritual life. That can't happen by any elaborate means that we can construct. And the way God has ordered it to come about is through normal, ordinary means. And the last point I want to point us to is that God will fulfill his promises. You can trust him to fulfill his promises. Back in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, the call came, go to the land that I will show you. And there, that land I will give to you and to your descendants for all time. But Abraham comes to this land and it is occupied. He has no right to purchase, no right to even let it be given as an inheritance to his posterity. All of these challenges, all of these obstacles 
all of these problems, and yet, here we see this land being purchased. God had assured himself, God had assured Abraham of this promise in Genesis chapter 13, and again in chapter 15, and again in chapter 17, saying, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. And for decades, decades, Abraham followed the Lord and trusted in this promise. And he trusted in this promise because he understood what he had believed back in Genesis chapter 14, that God is the possessor of heaven and earth. That's what he describes God as, the possessor of heaven and earth. So when we read Genesis 23, 18, and 20, we read these words. To Abraham, as a possession in the presence of the sons of Heth or the, or the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of the city. So the field and the cave that is in it were deeded to Abraham by the sons of Heth as property or as a possession for a burial place. You know, in verse 20, that word translated property there is the Hebrew word ahuzah. Back in Genesis chapter 17, verse 8, God had promised Abraham this, saying, I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And that word possession there is that word here, Ahuzah. And that is the same word that is translated at the end of Deuteronomy chapter 39. I'm sorry, 32 verse 49. Where he is taken up on the mount. And God tells him to go up and see the land that he will give to him. And there again we're told and given that land as a possession. It is a a ahuza. It is the possession of the people of Israel. This land is massively is a massively important thread in the story of the Bible. All the way from Genesis chapter chapter 1 and 2, where God puts his people in a place and they live under his word. That is the goal, and we are longing for that place. And finally, there is a toehold where God's people will begin to be in God's place once again. And Abraham himself will be buried here, as well as his son Isaac and Rebekah and Leah and Jacob. Even Joseph, when he dies, his Egyptian wife knows how important this piece of property is. And so when he dies at the end of Genesis chapter 50, she insists that his bones be carried up out of Egypt back to this place and buried in this piece of property as a sign of faith. And so it is true when the people of Israel are led back in to the land of Canaan by Joshua and they conquer it. So we read at the end of Joshua chapter 21 verse 45, not one of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed to come to pass. Do you hear that? Not one of the good promises had failed to come to pass. But not all would stay well. The people of Israel would rebel against God and they would be exiled. They would lose this place. 
One of the fascinating things that we read about in in Jeremiah chapter 32 is that Jeremiah himself, he goes and the day before the people of Israel are exiled, that is they were conquered and taken away, he goes on the command of God and he buys himself a piece of property, a field, and he takes the deed of ownership to that field and he buries it as a sign that they will return almost exactly parallel to what we see here. There is coming a time when they will return. And the story there doesn't end because in time this vision is expanded even further. In Psalm 2 verse 8, the Lord declares this to his son. He says, ask of me and I will make the nation heritage and the ends of earth your possession there is that word again oh who's the, the ends of the earth will be your possession and going on christ says in matthew 5 5 blessed are the meek for they will inherit not just the land of canaan they will inherit the earth and romans four thirteen, paul says that this promise that was given to abraham wasn't just for this plot of land but he says that they would inherit, the offspring of Abraham would inherit the whole world. And we are still waiting for this promise today. It was fulfilled in part, then it will be fulfilled again. And the vision for it, for all who trust in Christ, will be experienced at the end of days. This is what we read in 2 Peter chapter 3. It may seem like the promises of God, like God is slack concerning his promises. It may seem like time is long and that maybe we have reached the expiration date on God's good and plans, God's good intentions for us. But rather, a day, uh, we, we ought to know that God is eternal. A day with him is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. That is, he is timeless, he's outside of time. He doesn't experience time like you and I. And yet we are assured of this. Nevertheless, verse 13, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And this new heavens and a new earth is pictured and promised and held out to us in Revelation chapter 21. And in John 14, 3, Jesus assures us of this, that though he is going away, yet he will come again. And if he goes away, he is going away. Why? To prepare a place for us. And it is that place for which we are longing. There's a lot of ways we could end this message. Peter, when considering these promises, he urges us to holy living. And brothers and sisters, in light of the promises that God makes, let me urge you, live holy lives. It is live according to God's word. Even when it is painful, that's what will matter most. Trust in him. But more than that, more than anything else, I want to point you to that day when those promises will be fulfilled in truth. There is glory and there is gladness and there is joy that is waiting for you on that day. There is happiness like we have not even begun to experience in this life. 
Not only because we will be in a place where there is no suffering, no pain, no grief. All of that is wonderful. The absence of all of that will be incredible. But there will also be the absence of sin and the desire to sin in us. We will be free at last from sin's power, from sin's temptation. We will be free indeed. And being freed, we will be free to enjoy for all eternity the glory of God. Where to be with him is better for one day. It is better to be with him one day than it is to be a thousand elsewhere. Brother and sister, long for that day. Live in light of that day. The promises may seem long to come. They may seem impossible to experience. But your resurrection is assured because Jesus himself rose from the dead. The meek shall inherit the earth. So Paul writes this at the end of 2 Corinthians chapter 15. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed For this perishable body must put on imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and when the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Live in light of that day. Live in light of that victory. So when you watch the news this week and you're angered once again, remember that day is coming. And when this week, when you fight sin and fail again, remember that day is coming. And when you feel crushed by unmet desires or when you feel crushed by your own self-disappointment, remember that day is coming. And when you feel crushed because you miss that person so much, that empty spot on the couch, that vacant spot in bed. And when you are feeling most alone, remember that day is coming. And friend, if you have never trusted in Christ, you will On that last day, you will stand before God and give an account for everything. And we are told without a doubt that we will all be judged for what we have done. 
And we are described, that is, our problem is diagnosed, that we will all come up short, woefully short. We have all offended an infinite God who is infinitely holy, infinitely worthy, infinitely pure. And we deserve his infinite justice. But he has poured out that justice on his son so that all who trust in Christ might taste of that promised eternal life for all time. Trust in Christ. Trust in Christ. Trust in Christ and receive these promises as your own. Trust and taste and see that God is good. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for these promises. Grant us grace that we may hold fast to you. That we may cling to these promises even when the lights go out in our lives and in our hearts. Let us cling to your faithfulness. That because you have given us your own son, will you not now freely give us all things? And what you have promised is certainly within those all things. Help us to live this week in light of your glorious promises. By the power of your son who was raised from the dead, we pray in his name. Amen.